The word of the Lord comes to us today from 2 Samuel, chapters 10 through 12. And for the public reading of Scripture this morning, we will read chapter 11. And that's on page 262 if you have one of these Bibles. If you didn't have a chance uh, before today to read these three chapters together, I would encourage you to do so uh, perhaps later today or, or this week. Uh, we won't have a time this morning to read every verse of these three chapters, uh, but it is a helpful exercise to be able to take in the whole in one sitting if you have that opportunity. So beginning in uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, we will read the chapter this morning. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? 
Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one, now one, and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, You who gave Your Son for our redemption and the Spirit to give us new birth. May we hear Your voice. May it be Your voice of rebuke, of summons, of promise, so that we may have the confidence to respond to this story in the Bible as You would have us respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On the night of his betrayal, we read about two disciples of Jesus who failed him in particularly egregious ways. Of course, one is Judas, the betrayer. Judas, upon seeing the consequences of his actions and betraying Jesus succumbed to despair and went and hung himself. The other is Peter. Peter, when Jesus was on trial before the Jewish council, stood outside around a fire and in a moment of cowardice denied three times that he even knew Jesus of Nazareth. Peter wept bitterly over his sin, but he did not succumb to despair like Judas. He held on, and sometime later, the risen Lord, standing with him around a fire, asked him a question three times. Simon, do you love me? And three times, Jesus gave Simon Peter the opportunity to demonstrate his love for him, canceling out his three denials. This same Peter, some two months after that event, would go on to declare to a crowd gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the message of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And as he told the crowd, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, this was a man who proclaimed the forgiveness of sins, not as an abstract idea, but as a lived reality one that he had tasted for himself. What distinguishes Peter from Judas is that when Peter fell, he fell forward. He got back up, he repented, and he knew greater the depths of the grace of God 
as a result. You could say the same about the story of Saul and David in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Saul had a great fall as the first king over Israel. It's recorded in chapters 13 and 15 of 1 Samuel. And when Saul fell, God withdrew his spirit from him, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And he got to the point where he no longer heard from God. And he descended into greater and greater levels of paranoia, madness, and despair. David also has a great fall, and you read about it right here in chapter 11. And I don't think you could make the argument that, well, David didn't sin quite as badly as Saul did. You cannot read chapter 11 honestly and say that. What distinguishes David from Saul so that David does not experience the same fate that Saul experienced? Remember the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God came to David and made a promise to him. Verse 14 is right at the heart of that promise in chapter 7, where God promises to David that he will be a father to the house of David. The the relationship between God and David is that of a father and a son. So when David falls, he falls as a son of God. One who knows the heart of his father and therefore has the confidence to get back up, to repent, and to carry on in the grace of God. When we sin, we too have a choice. Our choice in moments of sin is we can try to hide it, we can suppress it, we can deny it, we can mitigate it in a vain attempt to justify ourselves and avoid having to face the gravity of what sin is in our own hearts. That's one choice. But the other choice is to confess, to bring it before the Lord, to fall forward, and to trust that God has promised forgiveness. What hinders repentance in your own heart today? Is it that you love your sin too much? Is it that you are simply morally lazy? Is it that you're too embarrassed to deal with it? Possible could be any of those or more, but I think the heart of the issue for why any one of us may not repent of sin in our own hearts today when we know it's there is because ultimately we don't trust the heart of God as a father to us. That will hinder repentance. But if we know His heart, if we know His love for us in Christ, there's no reason to hold back. There's no reason to fear. We can be open, we can be honest, we can confess, we can repent, and fall forward into the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. David teaches us how to do that today how to fall forward as sons and daughters of God. And as we walk through the story today, I want to show four movements to this story as we uh, note its contours, and all of them revolve around David as a son of God. And so let's walk through this this morning. We begin in chapter 10 with an anointed son. 
an anointed son. I take this, uh, this point from Psalm 2, which begins this way, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What you have in Psalm 2 is a, an image of the nations raging against God's anointed king, his son. And as the nations rage against him, God declares that he has his son's back. And he will put down through the working of his son, who will then inherit the nations, their rebellion against him. What we read in 2 Samuel 10 is a mini version of that with David functioning as the anointed king, the son of God. Chapter 10 begins with an account of the death of the Ammonite king, Nahash. And uh, Nahash was replaced by his son, Hanun, and David sent a delegation to King Hanun of the Ammonites, the Ammonites being a, a relative of the Israelites. They were descendants of Lot. David sends a delegation to console King Hanun on the death of his father and to congratulate him on his ascension to the throne. It was a, a, an, an act of public courtesy, uh, an act of covenant faithfulness to the Ammonites. But instead of receiving his delegation, King Hanun humiliated them. He had half of their beards shaved off, and then he cut off their garments at the waist, exposing them. Hanun was looking for a fight. Uh, perhaps he wanted to get his people out from under David's regional control, but whatever the case, he certainly got a fight that he was looking for. And he went and hired mercenaries among the Syrians to aid him in an alliance against David and his kingdom. You can read about this alliance in chapter 10. Look at verses 6 through 8. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David... The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Do you see how the nations rage? against the Lord's anointed king. So David sends his military commander Joab with the army to take on this threat, and Moab proceeds to where the Ammonites are located. But when he gets there, he is surprised to discover that the Ammonites are drawn up for battle on one side, and the mercenary forces are already there on the other. So Joab finds his army now surrounded. And uh, when I read this account, I thought of what happened at Parker's Crossroads just a few miles from here, where uh, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, on the one time he was taken surprise and was surrounded by Union forces, told his troops, charge them both ways. And they did. And somehow he managed to escape. Well, on this occasion, Joab uh, decides that his brother Amishai will face off against the Ammonites 
and he will lead his forces against the Syrian mercenaries. And he tells his brother in verse 11 of chapter 10, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. And this is the only time the Lord is mentioned in this chapter. But Joab leaves it in the hands of the Lord. And the question is, that is left hanging is, what will the Lord do? Will the Lord back his anointed King David and give them the victory on this occasion? And the answer is overwhelmingly Yes. Joab's forces routed the Syrian mercenaries. And when the Ammonites saw that their allies were fleeing, they decided to retreat as well back into their fortress city. Now, the Syrians did eventually go off and regroup. And you can read about how that worked out for them uh, in the rest of the chapter. But specifically in verses 15 to 19, which we won't take the time to read, but in these verses you can see David pursued the Syrians, defeated them once again in battle, and permanently broke the Ammonite-Syrian alliance. And in his victory in battle, David is a foretaste of Christ. He is a, a figure, an anointed king, who puts down a rebellion and then claims dominion over the nation's that have rebelled against him. When Christ comes again, he will come in victory over all the nations that now oppose him. And so the Lord has indeed defended his anointed one. All that remains at this point in terms of a military campaign is that David would finish the job by going against the Ammonites who first instigated this whole debacle. That's the stage for the rest of the story. The Ammonite campaign uh, is the background for what happens then in chapters 11 and 12. So let's move on now to chapter 11, where we read about an arrogant son. An arrogant son. The story slows down tremendously here. The, the account of the battles in chapter 10 are very rapidly told. In chapter 11, we have a narrative that is almost agonizingly slow in the way it unfolds. David, likely because of his political, military successes to this point, has evidently become an arrogant man. And you can see that in the way that he acts in chapter 11. Somewhere he had gotten the idea that it was okay for him to act like this was his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the Lord. That he ruled for his own interests rather than to be a steward who preeminently obeyed and enforced the law of Moses. And so in chapter 11, we have an account here of how after the, the events of chapter 10, David took the winter off as was customary. You take the, the winter rainy season off for battle. And when the spring came back around, David sent his forces under Joab to lay siege to the city of Rabbah where the Ammonites were uh, gathered. But David remained at home in Jerusalem. A siege is long, slow work, and David had things to tend to in Jerusalem, so he remained home. And one afternoon, after he had taken a, an afternoon nap, uh, 
he's up and he's walking on the roof of his house. That was a common practice in that day to cool off. You can experience the evening breeze out on the roof of your house. Well, David's house, being taller than the other houses around him, had the opportunity as he was on his roof to see down either through a window or perhaps into a courtyard of a nearby home. And there he saw a woman bathing, a beautiful woman, and his imagination became inflamed. And at that moment, he desired nothing more than to have this woman sexually. So he sent to inquire, who is she? David's intention in sending this inquiry was likely to determine whether or not she was married, because if she wasn't married, he could simply add her to his collection of wives. David had, to this point, built up something of a harem in violation of Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. So his heart had already been trained in this kind of arrogance. Well, the word came back to him. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was one of David's mighty men, one of the 30, as he's called later in the book. He himself was the son of Ahithophel, David's main counselor. So Bathsheba was the daughter and granddaughter of David's most, some of David's most important servants. But more importantly, she's also the wife of Uriah, the Hittite one of David's loyal soldiers. Now, polygamy is one thing, right? And it's, it's a terrible thing, but we see it, examples of it in the Old Testament where God tolerated polygamy. He never approved of it, but He tolerated it, you might say. Adultery takes a matter to an entirely new level. Here, David is presented with the opportunity to reach out and steal the wife of another man. And he does it. This is blatant defiance of the law of God. Blatant, open defiance. I want to speak to you for just a minute, especially those of you who are younger and may not yet be married. Although this could apply to all of us. One of the reasons sexual immorality appeals to our flesh is because it is forbidden. There have been couples who engaged in sexual immorality prior to marriage, who then later got married, who discovered they did not enjoy the marriage bed as much after getting married as they enjoyed the experience prior to marriage. Now, why do you think that is? It's because there's something of a thrill, there's an appeal to the flesh that says, I want to do this because it's wrong. I gain some kind of joy from telling God, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? I think I'll call my own shots today. Thank you very much. That was David's mindset. It had to be. Getting word back that this is a married woman that he's looking at, he proceeds anyway 
with what he intended to do, assuming that the consequences would not apply to him. Like Eve in Genesis 3 verse 6 at the tree that was forbidden to them, the text tells us in verse 2 of chapter 11 that David saw her, and then in verse 4, he took her. He substituted his own desires for the Word of God. And he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, actions do have consequences, and in this case, the consequence was the conception of a child. And so, sometime later, when Bathsheba discovered this fact, she sent word to David to tell him, I am pregnant. Now, it's obvious here that Uriah cannot be the father. He's out laying siege to the city of Rabbah. His wife had just purified herself from her monthly cycle. Biologically, this can be no other than David's child. And so David now launches his cover-up operation. And the way it is told in verses 6 through 25 of this chapter, the tension builds to an agonizing level. David begins with cover-up phase 1 in verses 6 through 13, where he decides, I've got to convince Uriah that this is his child. And so he calls Uriah back from the siege at Rabbah, and he peppers him with very basic questions that I'm sure Uriah was a bit confused. Why did you call me back to ask me how everybody was doing? You could have asked anyone. You could have, you could have had a messenger send you that. Why did you need me here to answer these questions? But he peppers him with questions to justify having him brought back, and then he tells Uriah, go home and wash your feet. In other words, relax and enjoy being back home tonight. David even sent a gift after him, a, probably a, a nice meal and some wine to be a prelude to an enjoyable evening with his wife. But instead, Uriah goes down to the entrance of the king's palace and he sleeps there with the bodyguards. And in the morning, David finds out this is what Uriah did. He he brings Uriah before him and he asks him, why didn't you go home? Haven't you come from a long way? Aren't you tired? Aren't you eager to get back home and relax? And Uriah's response is astonishing. He says, my fellow soldiers, my commander, they're, they're out in the field. They're, they're sleeping in tents. The ark of God is out there. And so out of a sense of duty and solidarity with his fellow soldiers... And presumably out of a desire to be able to go back to the camp at any moment without being ceremonially unclean, Uriah says, I cannot do this thing. I cannot go back home and enjoy the pleasures of being home and lying with my wife. So David decides, I've got to ratchet it up now. Maybe if I get him drunk, he'll forget about this solidarity stuff and he'll go home. And so David feast with Uriah that night, and they drink enough to get Uriah drunk. But as it turns out, even drunk Uriah retains enough control of his faculties to remain committed to showing solidarity with his fellow soldiers and keeping his vessel clean so that he may enter the camp again at any moment. And so David then proceeds to phase two. Verses 14 to 25, 
tell us that David wrote Uriah's own death warrant and trusted him enough to put it in his hand to take back to his commander. And it was orders to Joab that said, send Uriah to attack the most fortified point of the city and then pull back from him so that he's killed. As a military strategy, this makes no sense. When you're laying siege to a city, the point is not to attack. The point is to starve them out over time, to wait it out until they become so weak inside, then you can pounce and overwhelm a weakened city with military might. So to attack the city in the middle of a siege, more than that, to attack the most fortified part of the city, it makes no sense at all. But Joab did what he was told, and and he sent an attack, and David, knowing Uriah was a loyal enough soldier that he would fight to the death, His plan was carried out, and Uriah fell in battle along with several others. We could call them collateral damage to David's cover-up operation. So Joab sends word back to David, and Joab is afraid that when David gets the news about a loss in battle, David is going to respond with anger because this was a senseless military tactic. And so Joab tells the messenger, make sure when you report this news, if you see David angry, you tell him, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And so the messenger does as he's told, and he goes back to David, he reports the news, and he includes that very important fact at the end. Note David's response again in verse 25. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David had the audacity to attribute to chance what he himself had ordered by his own hand. This is an arrogant man who thinks the law of God does not apply to him. After Bathsheba receives word that her husband is dead, she goes through a customary period of mourning, and then David sends once again to have her brought to him, this time to become his wife. And she would eventually bear his child. And so, from all outward appearances, it looks like David has gotten away with it all. And then the end of verse 27 is like a landmine in the text. It is the one time the Lord is mentioned in this chapter. And it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The great Baptist theologian John Gill writing about this chapter tells us this is recorded to show what the best of men are when left to themselves. Um, How strong and prevalent corrupt nature is in regenerate persons when grace is not an exercise. What need the saints stand in fresh supplies of grace to keep them from falling? 
What caution is necessary to everyone that stands lest he fall? And then it becomes us to abstain from all appearance of sin and whatever leads into it and watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. I don't think David woke up that fateful morning and thought, I will commit adultery today. I don't think that was on his mind. I think the moment presented itself to him, took him by surprise, but it came in a context where he had allowed this arrogance to build up in his heart. And so I would urge you, brothers and sisters, to guard against every trace of arrogance within you. Cultivate within your own heart humility before the Lord as armor against those moments of temptation. And so chapter 11 has told us a story about an arrogant son, but we now move on to chapter 12 where we read about a chastened son. A chastened son. In chapter 11, there has been a lot of sending. The verb sent is used so many times. David sent Joab to lay siege to Rabbah in chapter 11, verse 1. He sent to inquire about Bathsheba in verse 3. He sent and took her in verse 4. She sent to tell David, I am pregnant, verse 5. David sent word to Joab to send Uriah back in verse 6. David sent a letter by Uriah in verse 14. Joab sent to David about the fighting in verse 18. David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house in verse 27. And now in 12.1, it is the Lord's turn to do the sending. And it tells us, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan the prophet comes to David to confront him about his sin. And we should read in those words, the Lord sent Nathan to David the most amazing demonstration of grace that you can imagine. The Lord did not strike him dead. The Lord did not withdraw His Spirit from him. The Lord did not cut him off from communication as He did Saul. He sent His Word. Painful Word it would be. But it comes from the love of a Father. When the Word of God comes to us and cuts us, let's always remember it comes with love from our Heavenly Father. It's time for Father and Son to have a talk. And that's what God is doing here. The way that Nathan speaks to David shows the grace of the Lord in that he moves past David's defenses. He doesn't give David the opportunity to build up defenses and then harden himself against the truth, he very gently and with subtlety lays a trap from which David can't escape. Notice how he says it uh, in the rest of verse 1. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Do you see the trap Nathan has just laid? And David falls right in. Look at verse 5 and following. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David can't escape the rebuke of the Lord. And he's already declared that he himself deserves to die. Out of his own mouth, he's borne witness against himself. Well, the turning point of this story comes in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In the Hebrew, that sentence is two words, but it is direct, it is simple, and it comes right to the heart of what had unfolded in David's life. Now, you could read that and say, David, you sinned against your, uh, Bathsheba, you were spying on her in a private moment. You sinned against her father and grandfather, your loyal servants. And above all, you sinned against Uriah, stealing his wife and then having him put to death. You've sinned against a lot of people here, David. Why are you trying to make it so simple? But the theological reality about sin is that all sin ultimately is about God. God is the very center of all that is true, good, right. He is the definition of those things. And all sin is defined in relation to Him. In saying, I have sinned against the Lord, David cuts through all the the, uh, external matters right to the heart of the issue. That his heart toward the Lord is not right. And that his acts of sin are ultimately against God. Notice there's no nuancing. He doesn't say, well, in a moment of weakness, I was caught off guard. He, he doesn't 
excuse himself. He, he doesn't say, well, I've been under a lot of stress lately with the war against the Ammonites, and so it was inevitable something like this would happen. He doesn't mitigate. He doesn't say, well, Bathsheba should have known she was in my line of sight. He owns his sin directly. And he teaches us that repentance begins with facing the gravity of our sin as sin that is fundamentally against God. I wonder if it's the case if some of us in here continue to struggle with sinful acts because we've never faced the theological implications of our sin. And when I say theological implications, what I mean is how our heart is responding to God in that sin. So some of you who are given to pornography, have you ever faced the reality of covetousness in your own heart and how you are seeking from a creature what only God the Creator can give you? Those of you who struggle with alcohol, Could it be that you've never dealt with the pain and the bitterness of your past and all you know how to do is medicate it? Those of you who struggle with opening your heart to others, maybe you're members of this church, but you've, you've tried to stay on the periphery because you can't deal with making yourself known to this body of believers, or, or perhaps some of you, you won't even join this church for the same reason. You've been hurt in the past, and your strategy to deal with it is to say, I will wall myself off from everybody, because you can't face vulnerability, and you've chosen to live in the fear of man rather than experience the life-giving joy of obedience to God. Perhaps some of you here refuse to reconcile with another person. And the reason you refuse is because you have a heart of pride that somehow takes pleasure in being offended. And you've substituted yourself for God in that very situation, whether it be these or any one of a number of other heart issues. Have you ever honestly and openly faced the reality of your sin and what it says about your response to God? If you are unwilling to lay bare your heart before God in confession and repentance, I would argue it's because you don't see honesty confession and repentance as a pathway of hope. You see it as a pathway of embarrassment and condemnation. But that's because you don't trust the heart of God. You don't know Him yet as Father who loves you, as the God who can take your sin, who can deal with it, and who is eager to have you bring it out. David receives a word from Nathan in response to his confession, a word that is a word of grace. Look at the rest of verse 13. 
Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David will experience consequences for his sin. And they will be very painful consequences. But they will come to him as fatherly discipline, not as wrath. They will come to him from the hand of a loving heavenly father. Because David is still a son of God. And so when this child is born to Bathsheba, the Lord strikes him with an illness. And for seven days, notice what the text tells us in verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. This is now a chastened son. His arrogance is gone. David has fallen from the heights of his roof where he saw and took whatever he wanted to now being on his face on the ground before the Lord in humble dependence. And that is falling forward. For seven days he appealed to the Lord to heal his child. For seven days he humbled himself before the Lord and yet it was not the Lord's will to heal this child. And so... When the child did in fact die, David's servants were afraid to tell him because they thought, if he's done this before he dies, what will he do after? He may harm himself, but David's smart enough to figure out what's going on and he pulls it out of him. Yes, the child is dead. So notice uh, that his response in the rest of the text is to, to get up, wash himself off, to go into the, the area of the tabernacle to worship the Lord and then to come back and ask for food to be set before him. And in verse 21, his servants don't know what to make of it. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. See, even in the wake of his sin, David had enough of, a, of the instinct of a son to cry out to his father to bless the child who had been afflicted. David is a chastened son who knows and trusts the heart of his father, even through such terrible sin. You know, the greatest blessing God can give you in your sin is to break you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means to recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord so that you do not trust in yourself, so that you trust in His grace alone. It is the polar opposite of arrogance. It is what God accomplished through David on this occasion. 
And it's what He must accomplish in each one of us. You see, what distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever is not that we who are believers don't sin. Well, isn't that patently obvious? It's not that we don't sin. What distinguishes us is what we do with our sin. Do we hide it? Do we cover it? Do we mitigate it? Do we run from it? Do we refuse to face it in a vain attempt to justify ourselves? Or do we lay it before the Lord in honesty and trust His grace alone? That's the difference between heaven and hell. We see David, now a chastened son before the Lord, becomes then a triumphant son forth, a triumphant son in the rest of chapter 12, verses 24 to 31. Now we come back to the siege of Rabbah and the Ammonite campaign. David is now chastened before the Lord. He's ready to complete this war. So Joab sends word back to him that that Joab's army had taken the water supply of the city of Rabbah. And of course, the city can't survive long without a water supply. And so Joab tells David it's time to come. And David comes. And in verses 29 to 31 of this chapter, we read, So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The Lord's anointed has put down the nations that were rebelling against him. He has taken dominion over those who rebelled against him. But I skipped over two verses, and I want to come back to those now. Look at verse 24 and 25. This is in the the immediate aftermath of the death of their son. It tells us, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. And he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What was originally an illicit union has now become the union that produces the next king of Israel and ancestor of the Messiah. There are two times God sent Nathan the prophet in this chapter. The first was to rebuke David, David in verse 1. And the second is to send a message of assurance of his love for David's son in verse 25. In fulfillment of his promise of 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. You might say it this way, what David intended for evil, God intended for good falling forward indeed. Have you ever wondered what David's life was like for those nine months between his sin and the confrontation with Nathan about his sin? We don't have to wonder. 
he himself told us in Psalm 32. In verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David was miserable in his sin, even though he thought he had gotten away with it. And then verse 5 of the psalm tells us, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David fell forward because he was a son of God. In his sin, he could trust the heart of his father with honesty, confession, repentance, and the hope of grace. He did not fall into despair like Saul, his predecessor, had done. He fell into the arms of a God who was pledged to him by covenant. And to the same God must we fall. For this God is pledged to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the covenant promises that through the atoning work and intercession of His Son, our sins are forgiven. And there is no sense in trying to hide them from the Lord to justify ourselves. We have complete freedom to be open about how broken, messed up we are. That's poverty of spirit. And that's what the Lord is looking for in us. David fell a broken man who would experience consequences of sin for the rest of his life. Painful consequences. He would lose the child here in chapter 12. All the way through chapter 20, you can continue reading about those consequences. The brokenness in his family. He almost lost his kingdom. And there will be a particularly painful passage to come when he will bitterly lament the loss of another son. You might say that like Jacob... David had an encounter with God that left him limping for the rest of his life. But it is far better to limp your way toward heaven than to run toward hell. So in response to this word today, I call upon you, those of you who know the Lord, be open about your sin. Confess it to the Lord, repent of it, and we have an opportunity for you to do that right now as we partake of the bread and the cup together. In a moment, we'll take a moment of silence. You can bring before the Lord anything you need to repent of, and then we invite you, if you are a baptized believer in good standing with a church, to eat and to drink with us, trusting in Christ to forgive you. If you are not a believer, then we ask that you would not partake with us today of the bread and the cup because we would like to see you first. Trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins and demonstrate that through baptism. And if you'd like to talk to one of the elders or perhaps one of your neighbors today about what is baptism, what does it mean, how can I pursue that, then we would very much love to talk to you today. But in a few moments, we're going to take a moment of silence, let everyone get into place and then we'll dismiss row by row to come and, and take one stack of two cups, be seated, and then we will all eat and drink together. Would you take a moment of silence then as we prepare the table?